Welcome to Talks at Advent, homilies and reflections given at the Church of the Advent, a Western Rite Orthodox mission in Atlanta, Georgia. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost, God is one. Amen. I don't know if you've heard that Christmas is coming soon. And if you've somehow avoided hearing about this, you're likely living like St. Anthony in the desert, and even he probably would have gotten word about this sometime between Halloween and now. Of course, we're in the season before Christmas, the season of Advent, a season of expectant waiting that began last Sunday. For me as a child, and probably most of you, the time before Christmas was indeed a time of waiting. I'm sure you can remember waiting for that gift you wanted very badly. And waiting gets tough. Maybe you've even had a few sleepless Christmas Eves. But honestly, as a child, your job was pretty easy around Christmas time and fairly in line, I guess, with the Advent season. Because you didn't really have much to do before Christmas except to wait. Perhaps uh, you had when you were younger or even now, one of my favorite Advent traditions in Advent calendar where day by day, starting on December 1st, instead of the first Sunday of Advent for some reason, you begin to mark off the days until Christmas one day at a time. Sometimes it's a simple marker you move, or other times there's a little ornament, toy, or piece of candy inside. Some are linear, some require a random search for the day, some go forward, some go backwards, and yet they all represent one of the best traditions with respect to one of the actual purposes of Advent, waiting. In today's gospel reading, we hear what we as Christians are waiting for. As Luke is before our passage recounting Jesus' responses to his impatient apostles who have asked the question, Teacher, when will these things be and what will be the sign when these things are about to take place? In a series of apocalyptic visions, of which our gospel reading is merely the end, it becomes sort of unclear what's going on. Jesus is talking about wars and persecutions, then about the destruction of the temple, then about the coming of the Son of Man, and then he closes with a parable that ends with verses that have caused great consternation to Christians throughout the ages. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all has taken place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Well, certainly everybody listening to that story is dead. And all you need to do is turn on the evening news or open a newspaper to know that the Son of Man has not returned with power or great glory. Or has he? There are so many threads here as Jesus talks. Is he talking about an individual person's death, his own death, the destruction of the temple, the end of the age. And as so often in Christianity, the answer is not either or, but both and. He's talking about all those things, and all of those things are somehow strangely the same thing. There are many parallels between Lent and Easter and Advent and Christmas, not just in the colors, but in the themes. Last week, we heard the same passage as Palm Sunday. And this week, we hear another parallel between the Lenten and Easter seasons. We're revisiting again a story that Jesus tells us just before his passion, 
because in the Advent season, we are not only expectantly counting down the days until he's born, but we're longing for his return when all the enemies of God are defeated. And yet we believe this has, in fact, already happened. We believe that when the Son of God, who was also the only man to be perfectly faithful to God, was murdered on a cross, he conquered the final enemy of God, death. Anathema to our God, which is life beyond life. He was resurrected and God poured out the Holy Spirit, the power of God upon the people, making them the temple of the living God and destroying the physical temple in Jerusalem. So is the Son of Man here? In some sense, yes, he's sitting right here in our tabernacle on the altar. And he will soon be here in the room for each of us to consume his body. History is over. The kingdom of God is here. When Jesus rested in the tomb on Holy Saturday, he rested from that incredible creation he had completed on the Lord's day, the eighth day, and a new age began. We began to partake in that kingdom by dying to this world. We join ourselves in his death through baptism and die daily with him through joining ourselves to the sufferings of this world, filling up in our flesh what is still lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions, as Paul says in 1 Colossians. If we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he also will deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. So theologically, as Jesus himself said on the cross, it is finished. And yet, as we sort of talked about time some last week, we have to wait chronologically to be reunited with him. And it's little wonder that Christians have long struggled with this passage. It's clear from the letters of the New Testament that Paul certainly thought Jesus was coming soon chronologically. And indeed, we see this in passages where he explains what will happen to those who are still alive when Jesus returns, which have led to whole lines of rapture theology in more recent times. But we have to remember that this is one thing we are told to be completely unconcerned about. But about that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven nor the Son, but only the Father. So what is it we should be doing? Well, Jesus answers right after our gospel passage in Luke. But watch yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and the cares of this life, and that day come upon you suddenly like a trap. For it will come upon all who dwell on the face of the whole earth, but stay awake at all times, praying that you may have the strength to escape all these things that are going to take place and stand before the Son of Man. God wants, us to find, God wants to find us working when he returns. And obviously we can't literally be awake all the time. This is Jesus talking in one of his famous hyperboles. But luckily we, luckily we have great examples of how to be workers in God's kingdom until he returns again and our judgment is whether we are able to stand before him or not. In fact, we have a great example that everyone knows, Santa Claus. He's a jolly old chap. He gets your letters and works to make all that stuff you want. He's awfully sweet. And um, it, he's also very convenient when it comes to the uh, waiting because um, sometimes when your children are acting out, you can remind them that they better not cry and better not pout. But okay, that's not quite the saint I was looking for. So I might need to put out a spoiler alert, kids. Close your ears. Santa's real. That's right, I said it. Santa Claus is real. Yes, Santa Claus. From where we get Santa Claus is the dialectical Dutch pronunciation of St. Nicholas, a real-life 4th century holy bishop. 
We celebrated his feast back on Wednesday. I want to tell you a little bit about it. St. Nicholas was the Bishop of Myra, an ancient Greek city now situated on the southern coast of Turkey. Luke and Paul visited that city a few hundred years before during their journey from Caesarea to Rome for Paul's trial. The real-life Santa gives us a great example of how to live while we wait for that time that it is not even for the sun to know. And here are a few excerpts from his hagiography. Now, first, St. Nicholas was reported to be very religious from a young age, even according to legend, keeping the canonical fast of Wednesday and Fridays while a nursing infant. And next, a story that has a lot to do with our modern-day Santa. Well, there was a certain, certain formerly rich inhabitant of Patara, whom St. Nicholas saved from great sin. The man had three grown daughters, and in desperation, he planned to sell them so that they would have money for food. The saint, learning of the man's poverty and of his wicked intentions, secretly visited him one night and threw a sack of gold through the window. And with that money, the man was able to arrange an honorable marriage for his daughter. And St. Nicholas also provided gold for the other daughters, thereby saving the family from falling into spiritual destruction. In bestowing charity, St. Nicholas always strove to do this secretly and to conceal his good deeds. In the year 325, St. Nicholas was a participant in the First Ecumenical Council. This council proclaimed the Nicene symbol of faith, the first part of the creed we say every week. And during this council, he stood up strongly against the heretic Arius with the likes of St. Sylvester, the Bishop of Rome, and Alexander of Alexandria, and Spiridon of Trimithotos, and other fathers of the council. Now, St. Nicholas, fired up with zeal for the Lord, assailed the heretic Arius with his words and also struck him on the face. And for this reason, he, was, he got deprived of his emblem, emblems of Episcopal rank and was placed under guard. But several of the Holy Fathers attending the council had a vision, seeing the Lord himself and the Mother of God returning to him the gospel book and the Omophoron, Omophorion, the um, distinctive stole that Eastern Orthodox bishops wear. And so the fathers of the councils agreed that the audacity of the saint was, in fact, pleasing to God and restored the saint to the office of bishop. Even during his life, the saint worked many miracles. One of the greatest was the deliverance from death of three men unjustly condemned by the governor who had been bribed. The saint boldly went up to the executioner and took his sword, already suspended over the heads of the condemned. And the governor, denounced by St. Nicholas for his wrongdoing, repented and begged for forgiveness. Now, these stories are nice, but beyond these stories, we actually know very little about St. Nicholas. And, of course, some of it is maybe embellished legend, right? But as Father Thomas Hopko says in his book, The Winter Pascha, the extraordinary thing about the image of St. Nicholas in the church is that he's not known for anything extraordinary. He wasn't a theologian. He never wrote a word. Yet he is famous in the memory of believers as a zealot for orthodoxy, allegedly accosting the heretic Arius at the First Ecumenical Council in Nicaea for denying the divinity of God's Son. He was not an ascetic. He did no outstanding feats of fasting and vigils. Yet he's praised for his possession of the fruit of the Holy Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Saint, uh, I mean, thought, well, maybe one day. Father Thomas Hopko says, he was not a mystic in our present meaning of the term, 
But he lived daily with the word and was godly in all his words and deeds. He was not a prophet in the technical sense, yet he proclaimed the word of God, exposed the sins of the wicked, defended the rights of the oppressed and the afflicted, and battled against every form of injustice with supernatural compassion and mercy. And of word, he was a good pastor, father, and bishop to his flock, especially known for his love and care for the poor. Most simply put, he was a divinely good person. That's end of Father Thomas Hopkins. It's quoted by him. And that's what we're called to be, divinely good people. In the season of Advent, let us renew our minds through fasting, prayer, and almsgiving, transforming the world around us through small deeds and patient endurance, as St. Nicholas did. Yes, God wants us to be working, but we don't have to change the world, just our corner of it. And when we do, we may be surprised to find, as St. Nicholas probably was, that he's indeed and that we have indeed changed the entire world. So let us pray. You revealed yourself, O Saint, in Myra as a priest, for you fulfill the gospel of Christ. By giving up your soul for your people and saving the innocent from death, therefore you are blessed as one become wise in the grace of God. In truth, you were revealed to your flock as a rule of faith, an image of humility, a teacher of abstinence. Your humility exalted you. Your poverty enriched you. Hierarch Father Nicholas, and treat Christ our God, that our souls may be saved. Talks at Advent, homilies and reflections given at the Church of the Advent, a Western Rite Orthodox mission in Atlanta, Georgia.